0: Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah chapter 43, and be ready to turn to Ezra chapter 1, Ezra chapter 1. All through the Word of God, the Bible talks about the importance of unity and being of one accord, and from the Old Testament to the New Testament, one of the ways in which that was expressed in times when the word was articulated as oftentimes the men, the, the heads of their home, as, as whether it was the priest or Moses or the preacher would be preaching, there would be the resounding amen, yes. meaning I agree. I agree, and, and we're not certainly trying to spark up some kind of you know weirdness, but it's biblical and it's good for there to be a like-mindedness, and so men, I mean, specifically, I'm not saying women can't amen, but I'm saying to my men, particularly if if the Lord speaks and you're saying, man, I'm agreeing with that, it's good sometimes to just amen and to, to say, hey, he's not the only guy in the building that actually believes that this morning. Amen? Amen. amen. Good. All right. Isaiah chapter 43. I pray I'm not the only one in the building uh, that believes that. Isaiah 43. We're going to look at two, th- couple verses. We are in our last, this is the last message for sure in the series on new streams. I believe this is the right way uh, to end this series. Isaiah 43, verse 14, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles, The Chaldeans whose cry is in the ships. Notice verse 5. Fear not, I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth want to preach on this subject with the Lord's help this morning, the choice for new streams, the choice for new streams. Let's pray. Father, bless now the preaching of your word. I pray that you would confront us with the choice and help us as individuals and as a collective to make the right one. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Thank You, you may be seated. Verse fourteen, God makes a shocking prophecy, but almost, it, but says it as though it's already been done. Because when when God says something's going to be done, it already is done in that sense. But what He declares to come is not small; it's not trivial. It is a shocking thing to hear, especially if you're living in this period of time, when he says in verse 14, Thus saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles. God's saying it's already planned, it's already done. Babylon will go down. That would be like me flying into China and walking into China and saying, Hey, it's already done. China, the government of China is going down, someone's going to come in here and take over China. Or me flying to the United States and proclaiming to the strongest military in the world, hey, someone's coming in here, they're taking over, Um, the government of the United States is going to fall. If you're living realistically, if you're in China or a surrounding country or in America, knowing the powers of the world, you're saying to yourself, that's impossible. I mean, that's not happening. I mean, we're talking gigantic powers here, and that is what God is saying about Babylon. The most powerful nation in the world, they will be overthrown. And sure enough, 562 B.C., it begins with after 43 years of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he suddenly falls ill and dies. The one who led uh, Babylon into glory, the one who built up the, the cities, who built up the nation, who, who took places like Israel captive and took the people into exile, Falls ill, he dies, and his son, Merodach, comes to be king. He's also known as evil Merodach. And and he comes into the throne and immediately begins to to initiate legislation that's completely different than his father. And you can read all about this. I mean, this is all over history. And and he does it in such a way that there's an instant revolt, and his brother-in-law murders him. So evil Merodach is gone. And all of a sudden, King Nabonidus Nabonidus comes on the scene and he takes over Babylon. But Nabonidus does something interesting. He rejects Marduk, who is the, the national god of the people. He was uniformly the god, loved all of the priests all of the worship was centered around Marduk and so Nabonidus who is a very religious individual didn't care much for politics comes in and says no you will worship the god of sin which is kind of intriguing there you will worship the god sin and when he does the priests revolt and and people begin to revolt and he just decides i don't want to deal with the pressure i don't want to deal with all of this and he goes off into the desert on a religious pilgrimage And hands the throne to his son, Belshazzar. So now Belshazzar is reigning over the kingdom, trying to overthrow the the worship of Marduk. Everyone's revolting. The priests are revolting. And here's what Israel's seeing. Here's what Israel's seeing. Very rapidly, they're seeing a nation that no man could have dreamed being overthrown. A power so great and so unified that they could have taken anything they wanted and suddenly they can't even get a ruler who can function in a way that promotes unity. And imagine the Jews who know Isaiah, who know the prophecy, who watch Nebuchadnezzar, evil Merodach, now comes in Nabonidus And he's messing it all up. And now Belshazzar is looking around and everything's falling apart. And there is upheaval and civil war taking place. And Israel's thinking to themselves, this is nuts. Babylon's becoming weak before our very eyes. Couple that with while that's happening, a young, brand new king Cyrus to Persia is on the rise a military tactician, a genius. He immediately goes into the Iranian mountains and he conquers the Medes who are known for their incredibly uh, uh, wonderful war skill and their ability to use horses in combat. He takes over the Medes and incorporates them into his army and that's where you get the Medo-Persian Empire. And he brings them in and now he has added to his military strength And then Cyrus comes down into what we know as Turkey or Asia Minor. He conquers Turkey. And as he takes Turkey, he takes all of their gold and all of their silver and all of their wealth. So now Cyrus has armies and he has wealth. And he drops into India and conquers India. And now this guy coming out of nowhere has the money and the military to rival Babylon. Nabonidus sees it. He, he leaves his religious pilgrimage in the wilderness and comes back and, and uh tries to build a wall to prevent the people from coming in to conquer them. And I'm just saying, can I just, can I just can I just the irony of the of the king of Nebuchadnezzar building a wall to keep a powerful nation from coming? Doesn't that take you back to Israel standing behind the walls as Nebuchadnezzar is coming to conquer? And history teaches us this, that the people were so angry with Nabonidus. They were so angry about religious, the religious revolt, that they gave themselves over to Cyrus. And they said, we would rather be ruled by Cyrus than by you. And they allowed Cyrus to come and to conquer them. Now get it. And in a very brief amount of time after the fall of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon falls and is overtaken by Cyrus, the rise and fall. You know, when I read stuff like that and I and I look at that verse in Isaiah, I'm reminded this: that God's timetable works over dynasties. You see, we 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 look at things differently. We look at things and Five year and ten year and fifteen year projections, but God doesn't. God looks at the rise and fall of kings, and and He's working in the rise and falls of uh, rise and fall of nations and decisions, and and the death of this king and the poor decisions of that king. All the while, the rise of this king and God is get it. God is working over the decades, strengthening one nation, weakening another nation, to bring about. His work. And I want to stop and say this because sometimes when we look at missions and we look at the work of the gospel, sometimes we we look too narrowly at things in a span of one year and two years. But God doesn't look at Sri Lanka. God doesn't look at... India. God doesn't look at China. God doesn't look at the propagation of the gospel just over the course of a of an annual calendar plan. God looks over the rise and fall. He he's constantly strengthening one area here and weakening another, and allowing for the gospel to flourish in some places of the world, and then eventually flourish in other places of the world. And if you study the history of the gospel, you'll find that the gospel flourishes in this area and then another area becomes prime and he moves the gospel over there. God fights wars over the course of decades, not years. Why does that matter? Here's why. Because your life and my life is part of a bigger picture that is either contributing to the strengthening of the work or the weakening of it. You see, sometimes we look at our life and we look at our church and we might say, well, we only have X amount of people and we're only doing X amount of things. But here's what we have to understand, that when God looks at Colombo Bible Baptist Church and he looks at you and me, he's not just looking at us in this time. He is working and building us for 30 years down the road. And he's working in other scenes in Sri Lanka to make this place open and that place open. And he's weakening things and building things. And your life is either part. Participating in growing the gospel here or weakening the gospel here. And what we have to remember is this is that we should never get overwhelmed by the Babylon of today. We should participate to be a part of the fall of Babylon tomorrow. And what are we doing as a church now so that in 10, 12, 15, 20 years, when God has things exactly where he wants them, that the that everything is in position for the country to be given the gospel in a great and mighty way. Sometimes, listen to me, sometimes a decision isn't about just here and now. It's about where will, what will my life contribute to in the rise of a Persia or in the fall, and in the fall of a Babylon. And you should ask yourself this question, as God is working in our country, which he is, whether it's towards 110 nationals or 310 nationals. Is your life contributing to that? Or is your life taking away from that? And all of us should be seeking to be a part of the work of seeing the gospel move forward. So Babylon falls. But that's not all God said would happen. But that's a miracle right there. God said Babylon's going to fall. Babylon falls. But that's not all God said would happen. Look in verse 5. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar. So he says this, not only is Babylon going to fall, but the power that takes Babylon is going to send Israel back. Now let's just think about this logically. What king that is so ambitious to build his kingdom, he's willing to attack Babylon, is going to be willing to release all. Hundreds of thousands of free labor to go back to their country. Like, who does that? You just took over Babylon. You have, now you have an entire nation that you can use at your disposal to build and to do more. Men, listen, conquerors typically aren't about being benevolent. They are typically about utilizing resources to build their own personal kingdom. And yet some young, ambitious king who just expended himself taking the kingdom is just going to say, all right, go on back home. Let me read to you the cover of National Geographic magazine. Who was Cyrus the Great? Cyrus went down in history as one of the most benevolent conquerors of all time, allowing his subjects to live and to worship As they please, the benevolent nature of Cyrus is straight out of National Geographic, not an Independent Baptist publication. The benevolent nature of Cyrus's reign took many forms. He placated the formerly powerful Medes by involving them in government. He adapted adopted habits of dress and uh, ornamentation from Elamites. Elamites across his conquered lands. He returned images of gods that had been seized in battle. And hoarded in Babylon. And in Babylon himself, he publicly worshipped the city's revered Marduk. Now listen to this. Cyrus's most renowned act of mercy was to free the captive Jews. Whom Nebuchadnezzar had forced into exile in Babylon. Cyrus allowed them to return to their promised land the Jews praised the Persian emperor in scripture as a savior whom God gave power over kingdoms so that he would restore to them to Jerusalem and allow them to rebuild their temple here you have babylon god says yeah they're going to they've already fallen i've already sent for it to happen nebuchadnezzar dies evil merodach weakens the kingdom nabonizer comes on and he makes even greater mistakes He raises up Cyrus. Cyrus takes over the kingdom. And suddenly, Cyrus is this benevolent, generous king. Now, now can we go further? Because National Geographic doesn't know the whole story. Let me take you to Ezra chapter 1. Are you with me? Say amen. Amen. Notice Ezra chapter 1. Now, you've heard the... You've heard the secular historical view. Now let's, let's go deeper and see what God said about this. Ezra 1 verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stored up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia. Now stop. He was such a benevolent, such a sweet man. Now look at what Cyrus said about his sweetness. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So here's what Cyrus said. Cyrus said, look, I recognize that the God of heaven opened the door for me to take over the world. I just took over the world, thank you very much. I'm the most powerful man on the planet. I own it all it's all under me but God has communicated with me that I better do one thing I better send his people home and that the temple better be restored so I'm acknowledging God and I'm sending his people home verse 3 who is there among you all his people his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the Lord, build the house of the Lord God of Israel. Uh, parentheses. He is the God. Wow. National Geographic. You kind of missed that right there. Which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Darius says, look... Power recognize power. I've got a lot of power, but God gave it to me, so I'm going to relinquish the children of Israel. You go back to Jerusalem, build your temple, and whoever wants to go, go build the house of God. Can I just say this? Favor from the world always comes from God. See, how did... How did Israel have the spoil to go build a new nation in the very beginning? The spoil of the Egyptians. And here you find the children of Israel, and they are under the captivity of Babylon. Now they are under the captivity of Persia. And what does the king of Persia do? The king of Persia is moved by the Holy Spirit of God to say, I, and by the way, you can read more about it. Not only am I sending you, but I'm gonna send, I'm gonna send gold and silver and the supplies that you need. I'm going to send you to build, not because me and my benevolent nature, but because God told me I better do this. You know, one of the ways that God begins the process of new streams is that he, he touches the heart of the world to open doors that we cannot open. Do you know why he does that? He doesn't do that because he needs the world. He does it to show how big he is, and that ultimately all people are under his power. I was thinking about this a couple weeks ago. You know, we, as a church, we were able to put Brother Onin in that house there in Punagala, and he was able to begin having services there, and and he got some some serious kickback from an AOG pastor there who kind of sees himself as the pope of the village, and so he wanted to shut brother on and down, and we were praying, and we were seeking God that that wouldn't happen, but guess what had happened? And the IOC came and said, hey, you got to register the property. you got to do this. If you don't do this, you can't have church until it happens. And so the Punagala property was shut down. Done. Over. Until a couple people showed up at the IOC protesting. And demanded that the church in Punagala be opened up. Are you ready for this? Couple Buddhist priests, and they showed up and said, "This property needs to be opened up, brother." This didn't call him brother. This man Anith needs to be able to have his worship services. And guess what? Signed off, and he's having worship today in Punagala. Now, see, if we're not careful, we look at that, we're like, "Man, we're so low that we have to." bailed out. No, 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 God's so high that he can use anybody of any belief system of any power to accomplish his mission and his purpose. And he doesn't have to just restrict himself to people who say, use me. No, God's so powerful. He can even take someone who says, I hate you, or I don't even believe in you, or I don't even think you exist, and suddenly actually carry out his legislation because he's that big of a God. And just understand this, in times of your life when you are seeking God, and it comes from the world, not because you are worldly, not because you begged the world, not because you 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 prayed to the world, but just God opened a door. Understand what God is showing you is that He has the resources in all places, and He can move businesses, corporations, rich people, not rich people, influential people to open doors and provide opportunities for new streams. And that's exactly what God does. Listen to me. I love this. I wrote this down. I love this statement. We don't appeal to the lost, but sometimes the lost appeals to us. Did you get that? No, we don't go to the lost and say, Can you please help me? But sometimes the lost comes to us and says, I want to help you. And that's the Holy Spirit moving and opening doors for our benefit. Okay. So, Isaiah, God says, You stay in Ezra, don't leave. God said, let me tell you what's going to happen. Babylon's going to fall. A new nation's going to rise. And I'm going to send you forth for new streams. Okay, now get this. At the time of Isaiah, now now I'm coming to to the point. At the time of Isaiah, that was nothing more than a prophecy. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. Their new streams are ahead. Like they're meeting together in the synagogue and they're talking about one day... God's going to do this. And one day, God's going to do that. And one day, the opportunity for new streams are going to come and, and provision and blessing and a, and a second exodus, if you will. One day, everything that God had said about new streams was the future. In other words, here's what that means. It required and demanded no decision. So they could talk about it, they could sing about it, they could have taken our theme chorus and did it in the synagogue if they wanted, and it would have been great, and they would have enjoyed it, and it would have been wonderful, but it would have required no decision because they were still under Babylon. But in verse 3, it goes from a prophecy to a different stage. Who is there among you? Of all his people his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem which is in Judah and build the house of the Lord God of Israel he is the God which is in Jerusalem new streams went from a prophecy to a reality and now the change went from this Coming to the synagogue saying, oh, we pray for the day that Babylon will fall. Oh, we pray for the day that there will be said, come my daughters and sons from the north and from the south. Oh, we pray. No, no, all of a sudden, the decree has come and the sons and daughters can come and go and and get it. Now they are confronted with the choice for new streams. We've we've been preaching for five weeks and we're going to sing about it and talk about it all year long. About God doing new things. It's awesome to talk about and think about and pray about. And there's things that are already happening in individuals and even in our church. But I'm going to tell you this way. At some point, a decree from Cyrus is coming. I'm not talking about me. I'm not Cyrus. Cyrus. An opportunity. It might be an opportunity for us as a church. It might be a ministry for you. Something. A chance to go for it. Like it's going to go from like singing the song as a theme to, hello, you, here's your chance. Go ye up. Or we as a church at a big day and we're saying, invite X amount of people and let's do this or let's do that. Or God opens some amazing door and say, hey, we're going to move or whatever it is. We're going to move over here and we're going to grow. Whatever it is, some point the decree is going to come and, and it's going to go from a song or, or a goal or a hope to a confrontation. And, you're, and the decree is going to be sounded out to us as a church, but also us to us as individuals. Can I just say this? When we have days where we're saying, let's bring lost people into building, and that's a decree that says, here's an opportunity, what are we going to do with that decree? When specific opportunities are coming into your life to serve the Lord and to do something for the Lord, what are you, you going to do with that decree? And here's what we're going to see. There's a lot of names. You see chapter 2. You see all them children. Can I tell you this? That there was a minimum of 150,000 people in Israel at this time. And we know that at least 100,000 stayed home. 100,000 stayed home. Now, I mean, I'll be fair. Not all of the 150,000 were old enough or were young enough to go. So you had some elderly people in there who probably would have liked to have gone, but they couldn't go. You may have had some people with physical ailments who couldn't go. You may have had some groups who determined they would come later because of the land and not overburdening the land. Like all those are factors that I want to recognize. But can I tell you this? A larger group could have went than did. Well, why? Because some of them didn't want to leave their house. Remember we talked about that in their gardens? Comfortable. Cyrus, pretty benevolent guy. Like, he's gonna let us have a synagogue right here. We can worship God freely. He's nice. We have a home already. I mean, we just got we just got a spar. Man, amen. It's going to be work and travel and the wilderness and starvation and thirst and I mean, don't we already have that in Exodus? Do we really got to do all this all over again? And then we got to go and the land's going to be all overrun. the animals, if there is any animals and our animals are going to die and their animals are probably already dead. Come, are you, come, come on, real people. And by the time I even get my house ready, I'll die. 100,000, get it, 100,000 aren't in this list. They're not here. I love verse 8, leadership went. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithareth the the treasurer and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. So Sheshbazar says, I'll lead, I'll be the prince, let's go. Verse 5, then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit of God had raised up to go to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. The Levites and those involved with the worship said, man, let's go back. Let's get this temple. Let's let's get the sacrifice going. Let's get the festivals going. Come on. We've been missing this. We've been longing for this. Let's rebuild the temple. And they said, sign me up. Let's go. The leadership are all ready. And then chapter 2, verse 64, you get, you go down this whole list, the whole congregation together was forty and two thousand three and three hundred and three score forty two thousand three hundred and sixty. Say, we're gonna go. Do you know what they said? We choose new streams. Do you know that in the 42,000 plus, they all had homes too? They all had stuff that they loved. They all, they all had relationships. They all had, they all had things to leave behind. But here's what they said. We want to see. We want to see what we've been singing about. I mean, we've been singing this theme. Imagine our theme chorus is a year. Their theme chorus was decades. We've been singing this chorus for a long time, and I want to see it happen in our You know, it wasn't easy. They go to Israel and they go to build the temple and they get started. And immediately there's opposition because the pagans want to come and help them. And they say, no, we don't want you to help us. This is only for God's people. And so they appeal to the king and it it results in a 15 year delay. 15 years. They're waiting for they're in Israel and they're waiting for permission to build the temple. But I want you to notice Ezra chapter six. And notice notice 6, 15. Keep that in your head. Chapter 6, verse 15. Keep that in your mind. And this house was what? Finished on the third day of the month of Adder, which in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king, verse 16, and the children of Israel, the priests, and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity, kept the dedication of the house of God with joy, get it, they went by faith, and God got them there. They didn't die in the wilderness, they didn't starve in the wilderness, He got them there, and while they were not even able to do anything, He sustained them and preserved them for 15 years without defense, without an army, without a wall, and eventually they got to build the temple of God for worship, and there was joy, and there was glory, verse 22, and kept the Feast of unleavened bread seven days, see it, with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. They went by faith. They said, The streams have confronted us. Let's travel. Let's go and it wasn't easy and it was hard work and they poured themselves but they got to an Ezra 6:15. They were there when the temple was built. Wait a minute. Nehemiah 6:15. Cuz they stayed there a little longer. More people came. Because now they got the temple, but they gotta protect themselves. They gotta, they've gotta, they've gotta preserve themselves, they've gotta protect themselves, they've got to have a wall. And so you can read Nehemiah, they're trying to build a wall, and everyone's against them, and they're having all kinds of issues, and they're literally building the wall while they have their swords right there, and, and they're having to watch the gates and, and all these different things. And you come to Nehemiah 6 15, and it says, so the wall was what? Finished. In the 20... Isn't that amazing? 6.15, 6.15. So the wall was finished in the 20th and 5th day in the month of Elul. In 52 days, 52 days, the wall was done. Miracle. Verse 16. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. Joy, joy, dedication. This... No, 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 the same author writing the same book, making the same emphasis, saying this, both led to joy. Almost exactly the same verbiage. Get it? That list in chapter 2, the children of, the children of, the children of. If I wanted to be really mean, I'd call someone to preach that passage and read that whole passage. That's a lot of names. Guess what? They had a 615. They got to be there when it was finished. And I'm telling you, those guys that stayed back probably enjoyed themselves. Like, come on. It's not like God smote all their homes back in Babylon with lightning. But I wonder how many of them would have given it all up for the 6:15. To be there, when the temple was rebuilt, if you know anything about the Jews, that's everything. When the first feasts and the first festivals, and then to go through the grind of the building, the wall, that that wall, every leader who has ever been in the ministry studies the book of Nehemiah and thanks God that that's not their ministry, because that was such a hard job. And they were there 615. And then you go into chapter 8 and they all gather together in the word of God. I mean, what a time. See that list. That list. They got their new streams. What was the new streams? The temple and the wall. Ezra and a Nehemiah, 615 and a 615. I believe the Lord is saying this to us, and I'm not trying to be a, a, a false prophet, but I just believe based on the way that God works, you could say this that for our church, we have to understand a new list is coming. I'm not saying we're erasing members. But from generation to generation and from year to year, God confronts the church with opportunities for more. And a list is comprised of those who say, I want to help, I want to participate, I'm in. And I'm thankful that that our names aren't like these names. I can say every name in this building today. But a new list is coming. And just because you're a member doesn't mean you get on the list. He didn't name the 150,000, he named the 42,300 people that went, and only those who decide to be a part. And I'm not talking about just this little ministry over here or this little. I hear this word click makes me want to throw up because that's not what we have. We have a variety of ministries of ministries, not a click. If you have a ministry, that's not a click. It's just a ministry. You can't involve everyone in every ministry, but everyone should be involved in a ministry. Amen. And as the church has opportunities we as a church decide on special days, special events, when he opens some doors and some Persian king opens a door that I don't even know what's coming, but I know God's going to move. Are we and who is going to sign up and move forward? And here's what I know. A new story is always being written, and thus a 615 is, being com- is coming Hey, I, I could sit around and I could talk about old 615s. I could tell you about this day. We had X amount of guests. We had this guy saved. I could tell you. I could, You have your 615s. I have my 615s. That's awesome. How about we have some new ones? But only those, the 42,300, get to really know the 615. What's the 615? Whatever it is was finished. So the greatest days in church is when a church labors for something. They have a wall that they're trying to accomplish. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i talking about when church becomes something amazing when we're working on a wall and we finish the wall. And it's like, wow, 615. You know what I'm praying for as the pastor? Some of you have never had that. Like you're new to church, you're new to the Lord. You've never, I'm praying, God, let them see in 615 this year in their life and in our church. Let them see the, let them see how powerful you are this year. But you have to decide. A couple of things, and we're done. We started the series saying new streams run through clean hearts. Then we said new streams flow through a proven God. Last week we said new streams flow into a painting of glory. This morning I say this, new streams flow to a people of faith. To a people of faith. To a 42,300 who say let's do this thing. Let me give you a couple things and we're done. Number one. See the big picture of the decisions in your life. Your your life and your family are not just an island, but you are contributing or not contributing to the overarching work of what God's trying to do. And allow yourself to be a part of the big picture. You know, I'd like to believe that I'll be here the day that 110 national pastors are preaching, but I might not be. But you know what I will know? That when that day does come, I'll have been a part of it. And so will you. And so will our church. If we press forward. Number two, remove the word impossible from the work of God. Babylon was impossible. And it happened. Remove the word impossible. Don't come to me about impossible. Don't chat with me about impossible. Just get rid of it. If it, Whatever that word is in Singala, just say it doesn't exist. We don't have that word in Singala. We don't have that word in English. We don't have that word in Tamil when it comes to God. doesn't exist. Number three. Decide today, you will step into whatever God calls for tomorrow. Decide today, you will step into. Whatever God calls for tomorrow, what am I saying? Go ahead and determine today that when that decree comes tomorrow, that you're ready to move. You got your bags packed mentally. You're ready to follow the Lord. Whether it's a ministry for you, whether it's getting in the work for you, whether it's our church having opportunities, whatever it is, just decide today that whatever God calls for tomorrow, you're already ready. You're leaving the vineyard. You're ready to go. And then the last thing is this. When you're tired, remember 615. When you're tired, remember 615. When when the times come where you're saying, ah, just remember 615. It, It was finished. It was finished. And that can be there for you, and that can be there for me. New streams flow to a people of faith. The question is, will you be one of them? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.